For it is impossible for a person who's once been enlightened to the good things of God and then falls away to be brought back to repentance. Aren't they chilling words? Did you feel a sense of fear as we read them? You should. They're alarming words. Uh, Often as I'm reading a passage and trying to figure out uh, how to preach it, I'm trying to find the tension and the thing that's, this is why we desperately need to hear this part of God's word. I trust as we read these words, it's clear that we need to listen and heed what it says, don't we? Have a look over verse 4 again with me. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. We need to have a healthy fear in reading words like this. Afraid yet not terrified. We'll see that a bit later. And what if you're someone who's here this morning, you're not a follower of Jesus, it is great that you're here, what are you talking about falling away? I'm not holding on to anything that I can fall away from, what has this all got to do with me? For you, if you never hold, if you never grasp hold of the thing that others are kind of warned not to let go of, the danger for you is the same. The writer thinks that the words he's saying are the most important words you could ever hear it's got to do with the greatest danger you'll ever face and so it's worth listening to and at least investigating i think hebrews is warning us about the great danger of falling away from jesus of not holding on to him and so what is the thing that can put us in this dangerous place what's the thing that we need to watch out for that we might avoid this awful outcome let's look at the passage point one Don't be a lazy listener. Have a look at verse 11 with me. About this we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. In the last passage, chapter 5, verse 10, we finish with the idea of Jesus' high priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. And he says, I've got stacks more to tell you about it. Chapter 7 picks up on this idea. But he interrupts that train of thought to say this stuff is hard to explain. Yet it's not for the reason you might expect. It's not because the content is difficult. He says it's not hard to understand what's going on with Melchizedek, right? He says the problem is you. He says the problem is your hearing. You've become dull of hearing. Literally, you've become sluggish, lazy, unfit with your hearing. You don't regularly or intently listen to God's word. You're lazy in it. And so it makes it hard for me to explain these things, particularly to you. Wow. What a way to start, right? Just to kick the boot in. And that's not all. He says, your lazy listening has meant this, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. The assumption is that if you've been a Christian for a while, you should be one who teaches. No one, not, not one who has to be taught the basics again and again and again, someone with nothing to contribute. It's not saying that every Christian should be a pastor or be gifted to preach, but it is saying if you've been a Christian for a while, you should have learned enough to be someone who teaches and passes things on. 
It's kind of a, a natural and healthy growing up that happens in the Christian life where you, you move from someone who primarily receives to someone who teaches and contributes. That is what's going on with the Hebrews. They never move beyond receiving. They need the basics again and again and again. And the writer says, you ought to have grown up by now. Is that you? Never moved beyond the kind of receiving only to being built up where you can pass on and teach to others. The writer has something even more provoking and actually kind of disturbing to say. Have a look at the end of verse 12. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. To those who are lazy, he says, you are children, you're a child. Now, we sometimes use that positively, right? Like, you know, you have fun like a child. That's a great thing. Or, or we can't have this word, kiddos. There's this great thing where you can grow up and kind of still hold on to your kid roots. You, you don't take on too much stress or responsibility. It's great to still be a kid. In the ancient world, to be called a child is to kind of have the same status as a slave in the household. It is to your shame to be called a child. He says you need milk not solid food. You might be physically grown up like an adult. You might be a 30-year-old, but it's like you're still being nursed by your mother's milk. It's gross. It's shocking. It ought not to be. But because of your attitude to the word, he says, that is what the Hebrews are like. You are unskilled in the word of righteousness. Unlike the mature who have solid food, who by virtue of their maturity are trained in the word and therefore able to distinguish good from evil. That's the mark of maturity. Someone who's deeply trained in the word, who listens carefully to it and has an ability to, in any and every situation, be able to discern what is good and what's evil and then do what is good. So the key question as we listen to this is, how is your listening going? That is a key thing. How is your listening going? I've got three things to look out for. Are you regularly listening to God's word? If we want to avoid being lazy listeners, we've got to be regular listeners. Maybe you used to be keen and in the word a lot, but you've slowed down and stopped completely. Maybe you feel too busy, find it a bit boring. Maybe I'm just not a reader. It's not for me. Whatever the case is, Hebrews says that is danger. That is extreme danger. The consequences are huge. Be a regular listener. It's all kinds of strategies that are good to help you be disciplined in all these things, but the key is having a heart changed, a heart that wants to listen to God's word. It'd be worth praying that God would grow that in you. Two, do you have intent when you're listening. That is not just are you reading the word, but do you even attempt to learn and to grow when you come to God's word? You may be regular, but are you just happy with the kind of surface level understanding? When something comes up that you don't understand or don't know much about, do you go digging? Do you, do you read further, ask questions, find out more, or, or just happy to, to move on? I'm happy with the surface. I don't really need to worry about that. 
When you listen to sermons, are you just trying to pick out what's wrong, what you can criticize? And I'm sure that there's plenty to go on in that. But do you come with the intent to grow and to learn and to be a good listener? Do you have intent when you are listening to God's word? The third thing to say is it is okay to be a slow learner. This isn't saying it's wrong to be a slow learner or less educated than some people. There is actually, in fact, a great danger for intelligent people that you can, you can hide your spiritual state or your laziness behind your intelligence. It's easy to be the one who asks pedantic questions in Bible study, right? It's easy to show others you can pick holes in the sermon and yet not be growing yourself, not going deep in the word yourself or putting it into practice. The slow learner who spends time in God's word and puts it into practice they are feeding on solid food. Keep going. Don't worry about your slowness. So don't be a lazy listener. It is critically important for your Christian life. There is great danger to being a lazy listener. What should you strive for instead? Point two, go on to maturity. Have a look at chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings and the laying of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Don't be a lazy listener. What should we be aiming for? Pushing on to maturity, going deeper in our faith, deeper in the word and being trained that we might know and do what is good. So what do you do if you want to go on to maturity? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Now that sounds wrong, doesn't it? Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Are we told to never leave Christ? What's going on here? I think it's a bit like kindy in year one. When you go from kindy to year one, what do you do? You leave kindy and you go to year one now, is the point that you forget everything that you learnt in kindy and you're doing something totally different and if you remember something from kindy, that's, that's not the point. The point is that you build on what you learn in kindy. You leave one to go on to maturity. Verse 1, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. Don't just pour a concrete slab and lay a foundation and then when you finish, just pour another concrete slab on top of it and then when you finish that one, do another. The point is that you build upon the foundation you move on from the abcs and you go deeper or higher however you want to do the metaphor feed on solid food and we're told some of those things what they are we get some examples what are the foundational things where to move on from they're the, the abcs what should, what are our foundation we're not going to go through all of them in detail but they're foundational things about the christian faith so we see of repentance from dead works and a faith towards god becoming a christian Instructions about baptism and setting people apart. Knowing the future of resurrection and judgment. There's some of the ABCs. Move beyond that. Things like the nature of Jesus' high priesthood. That's where we're going, chapter 7 to 10. Do you have an appetite for the deeper things of God's word? Are you building upon the foundation, moving on from the ABCs, the things of kindy? Sam said we've got a stretch night coming up this week, with the express purpose to stretch you theologically, to go deeper in maturity? Have you put it in your diary? Have you cancelled plans to be there? This stuff matters. 
Why? Because if you continue as a lazy listener, never going on to maturity, that path has a devastating end point. Point three. There is a point of no return. Have a look at verse four. For it is impossible, in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then to have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance. Hebrews 4 says, There is a point of no return, a line that if you cross, you can't come back from that you might drift so far out to sea away from Jesus that you can't swim back. And the reason it's impossible to come back is that God will not have you. See, it doesn't say it's impossible for you to repent. It says it's impossible for you to be restored to repentance. See, we tend to think we can do whatever we want, whenever we want to do it. I'm the master of my own destiny. I can choose to come back to Jesus whenever I want. No. If we think we can treat Jesus however we like, live with no regard for him, side with the world, and then just come back whenever we choose, that is a very dangerous game to play. God is very gracious and compassionate and forgiving, and yet here it says, don't play games with that. Why? God will not let you treat his son like that forever. That's what it's saying at the end of verse 6. It's impossible to restore those who have fallen away to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. If you've understood and been brought into the things of Christ that you've stood with him and then you move to reject him and stand in opposition to him, it's like you're crucifying him again, making a public spectacle of disgrace, the Son of God. To turn away from Jesus after standing with him is the most reprehensible thing you could ever do. Crucifixion was designed to be awful, right? It was meant to be so awful and guilt, it was meant to deter anyone else from committing that crime. When you drift and turn from Jesus, you crucify your relationship with him, holding him up to public contempt and shame on the cross again for others to join you in your ridicule and mockery. God will not let you do that to his son forever. And so, watch out in your dabble with sin. Watch out for the thing that might take you down that road away from Jesus. Watch out for lazy listening, not pressing on to maturity, treating his word like it doesn't matter. Lest you drift and one day turn away from Jesus. We worry about all kinds of things in life, don't we? Work, relationships, money, anxieties that are real and genuine and there. But Jesus says this is the thing to worry about and devote your attention to, your eternal security and future in your relationship with Jesus. We should have a right and healthy fear. Yet, we don't have to be terrified. We'll get there in a second. I do think it's worth saying it's, it's possible to backslide and come back for a bit, though it's very dangerous. It's not saying you can never stumble, struggle, or find it hard. Yet it is saying drifting from Jesus 
having no regard for his work, is playing with fire. Extremely dangerous. Now, when it comes to others, we don't know anyone's heart or where they stand, and so anyone outside of Christ, we preach the gospel to. But when it comes to us, what is this warning trying to do? It's easy to, to read a verse like this and spend a bunch of time worrying, How, am I 10 metres out from sea? Where am I? That is not what these words are trying to do. What are they trying to do? Point four. The goal is that you'll inherit the promise. Have a look at verse 11. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope to the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those through faith and patience inherit the promises. We don't say these things to shame you into holding on to guilt. We speak strongly to motivate you to hold on to Jesus, to reach the end, to continue in faith and patience that you might inherit the promises of God. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yes, we've spoken harshly, but it's because we desire earnestly that you might reach the end. In fact, verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Not only do we want you to reach the end, we're actually very confident that you will. It's amazing. How can you possibly be confident? Two reasons. First, he says, the Hebrews have produced fruit that belongs to salvation. If you just go back to verse 7 and 8, we get an illustration of two different lands that have had rain falling upon it. Have a look at verse 7. For a land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and then produces a crop useful to those for the sake of whose, for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. We get two different lands, and, and the rain of God's word and his blessings are poured out on both of them. One land drinks in the rain and then produces a crop in line with what was planted, and it brings great pleasure to the owner. The other land receives, in fact, the same rain, but produces only thorns and thistles, and so is near to being cursed and is burned up. The point is God's rain falls on them both, but the end result depends on what they do with the rain. Those who fall away, who reject God's Son and his word, produce worthless things. But the land that receives ultimate blessing is a land that drinks deeply and produces good fruit. And that's what the Hebrews have done in the past, verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for in his name in serving the saints, as you still do. The Hebrews have shown a genuine love for God, shown in the fruit of serving his people. This good fruit is evidence of things that belong to salvation. He says we can point at real fruit in your life, things that spring from being soaked in the word, Things that belong to salvation, that is a great reason for confidence. If you can see things, if others can point to things coming from your life that are spring from God's word in your life, that is a great reason for confidence that you are the land that will be blessed and not fall away. But actually there's a far deeper reason for an even surer confidence. Point five, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Verse 13, he starts talking about Abraham, what's going on there? 
Well, he's talking about the promise God made to Abraham, verse 14. Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, this was a crazy promise, an impossible promise that God promised Abraham he would be blessed and actually the whole world would be blessed as Abraham had children that would become a nation and be a blessing to the world. Now, it was impossible or crazy because Abraham was super old and he had a super old and barren wife. There was no chance that they could have children and be part of God's blessing in this way. But God made the promise and it says he confirmed it with an oath so Abraham could be certain. That's what we do, right? We make oaths with people so that they can trust our words and our promises. You know, we do the, I promise to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So do we do that in Australia? I don't know if we do. People, people make oaths and so you can trust their words. We swear by someone greater than ourselves to confirm it. This passage says that when it comes to God, there's no one greater than himself. And so when he swears, he swears by himself because he's the greatest thing going on. That, that's verse 13. And so this sure promise God makes to Abraham helps him persevere in faith and patience even when it seems impossible. Despite all the odds, Abraham actually has a child through whom he and the world would be blessed. But then crazier than that, after he had this child, God tells him to sacrifice him. This child through whom blessing would come. It's wild. It's crazy for a whole bunch of reasons. But of course, one is that if he goes through with it, God's promise cannot come true, right? But Abraham trusts in God's firm and sure promise and so moves to go through with it. And yet incredibly, God rescues him and Abraham receives the promise and blessing. And the point for us is verse 17. Have a look. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise... Who are they? The heirs are Christians, those who are part of God's family, set to receive an inheritance. When he wants to show us the unchangeable character of his promise, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. When God makes a promise... A promise that he'll bless you, that you'll be in heaven with him in the place where there's no more tears, crying or pain, perfect forever. When God promises a salvation like that, you can trust it. God won't and cannot lie. You can hold fast to the hope, even when it seems impossible, even when it seems like there's no chance of it possibly happening. Verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. God's promise is an anchor in the ground that you will not drift out to sea. It's a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus in his death, resurrection and ascension has gone behind the curtain to the holy place where God himself dwells ahead of us and on our behalf. And so we can be certain that we who are in Christ will go there as well. We will reach the end. We will inherit the promises. You can be certain and have great confidence because the one who promised it cannot lie. Isn't that incredible? What a great 
assurance. Just, just sit and let that confidence and assurance wash over your soul. You have a sure and steadfast anchor for your soul. Now, before we look at how that fits with the first half of the passage, I need to say, if you are not with Jesus, this is not yet a promise or hope for you. You need to repent and have faith in the one whose promises are sure, the promise that can be for you if you come to him. But how does all this fit together? So we've heard a a deep warning, right? Strong words, and yet we've heard a sure promise. The warning is there that we might heed it, and the promise is there that we might trust it. Don't be a lazy listener. Move on to maturity at all costs. It is dangerous not to. But you can have confidence that you're producing fruit that belongs to salvation and you have a very sure promise that is a steadfast anchor for your soul. Heed the warning and trust the promise. Both have the same purpose, that we might hold on to Jesus and inherit the promises God has made. Of course you can persevere and hold on to Jesus because you know the one who has promised it is sure. And of course you desperately need to hold on to Jesus because the alternative is so terrible and awful. Do not go there. It's a bit like being on a cliff. If you can imagine a cliff where you've kind of got a flat bit and then there's a sheer drop on all sides that will kill you. Passages like this are God's warning signs that he puts at the edge of the cliff saying, don't come near the edge. It is too dangerous. It'll kill you if you go over it. He doesn't build a fence that means you can't go over. It means you just don't need to do anything. He puts warning signs in as a means of grace so that you will hear them and not go near the edge. God's people will hear his warning and respond rightly by staying away from the edge. And he gives an unshakable promise in his son that gives us great confidence and hope that we will stay in the middle on the safe part of the cliff, clinging to Jesus, holding fast that we might reach the end and inherit the promises of God. God in this passage by his spirit wants to move you this morning to heed the warning and trust the promise that we might hold fast and inherit his good and gracious promises. God wants to move you this morning to heed the warning and trust the promise that we might hold fast and inherit his good and gracious promises. Let me pray that we would do that. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your grace to us that you would warn us about real danger but that you do not leave us on our own. You work in us by your very spirit. You make promises that you cannot lie, that we can hold firmly to, that are sure and steady anchors for our soul that will help us to hold fast to your Son. Thank you so much that we deserve none of these things. We deserve your judgment because of our sin, but we have your grace because of your son. 
We pray we would know how huge these things are, that we wouldn't drift from them, that we might hold firmly to them. We thank you for the confidence that we can have that we will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.